Hello, welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I discuss wokeness with Eric Kaufman. He's a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, a senior fellow at the think tank Policy Exchange, and the author of books such as White Shift and Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth. You can find him on Twitter. I would add that uh, Kaufman is um, in the top three wokeness studies scholars by my reckoning, along with uh, Zach Goldberg and David Rosado. So it's uh, very important that we have him here to discuss the topic of wokeness. Uh, Kicking off then, how would you define wokeness? What is it that we're talking about here? Yeah, so uh, wokeness is the, in, in, in a sentence, is the sacralization of historically marginalized uh, race, gender, and sexual identity groups. So the making sacred of these groups as totems that cannot be offended, uh, and any disparity uh, in outcome between them and the oppressor group uh, has to be a result of structural power differentials, which we can call structural racism, patriarchy, or heteronormativity. So that's my, my definition of wokeness. Um, and it's all, again, has that sort of religious connotation around sacred totems mm. that you can't offend. But I think it's the scaffolding for uh, a more sort of secular ideology, I guess, which I would call cultural socialism, which is really about uh, equalizing self-esteem, power, resources uh, between identity groups um, and preventing harm, including emotional harm, such as being offended uh, to those identity groups, including microscopic emotional harms known as microaggressions. Right. So, so do you use the term wokeness yourself? or Because there's a lot of different terms that seem to mean approximately the same thing. There's left-wing identity politics, regressive leftism, cultural Marxism. You just mentioned one yourself, cultural socialism. What's your preferred nomenclature here? Well, I'm really hoping, and this will be a, hopefully in the title of my next book, is to get cultural socialism to be the sort of consensus go-to term. I think there are too many terms, and they some of them are used too loosely. So, for example, even though I think there are orthodoxies around climate change and around um, COVID, I don't think those, I would put those outside the definition of what I call wokeness, which I think centers, I center it very much around the the Holy Trinity, race, gender, sexuality. Um, And I think we have to also understand that this is a form of socialism. It is a form of the same sort of oppressor oppressed um, utopian worldview that that was there in socialism and it's just been transposed onto identity categories but it's uh, it's interesting isn't it that some of the mo- some of the prominent critics of wokeness are old school leftists people who would classify themselves as socialists uh along with of course many on the right who criticize wokeness does that stand against your uh, preference for cultural socialism as a term I don't think it does. I think that it, you know, to the extent that these old time socialists are attached to historical materialism, you know, they are right that this is clearly a departure from historical materialism and class and uh, the mode of production and all of that kind of Marxist analysis. Um, The only thing I would say is a couple of things. One is that uh, just first of all, on a descriptive level. Uh, people's self-identification on a left-right scale is the strongest predictor of where 
they are on issues of cancel culture and critical race theory, for example. So just descriptively, there's a very high correlation between being on the left and being pro-woke. The other thing is, you know, if you understand um, socialism to mean egalitarianism, and this idea to weaken the strong and, and, and strengthen the weak, although I think the strength and the weak component is actually pretty flimsy. But but essentially, if you understand it to be about that kind of leveling and this idea of seeing the world as, as a power struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed, and you have to overthrow the oppressor um, with this vanguard of oppressed, and then you will bring forth this new uh, thousand year reign of Christ on earth, not quite, but a kind of secular version of, of that um, millennium, then I think it is very much in that sort of um, Marxist mode. Now, of course, it does draw on certain elements that were weaker in, particularly pre World War I Marxism, was not particularly humanitarian. Um, and <laughs> there's no question that the that humanitarian kind of let's be kind and gentle. Uh, ethos is that, that that's an enormous part of this ideology, and that is foreign to pre-World War One or even pre-World War Two Marxism. Um, and so again, they have a point, um, but I still think that yes, there's a fusion of elements that are close to liberalism and social democracy. But um, I think the best way of thinking about it is as a cultural form of socialism, even if it lacks one or two of the elements of traditional Marxian socialism. So just to clarify, then, you do prefer cultural socialism to wokeness or woke? Well, I think woke is a, is a useful shorthand, and it more describes the, the religious, the sort of ritual, mythical, sacred elements that surround the ideology. Um, so it's an appendage, it's a sort of sacred canopy around the fundamental um, philosophy that, that is cultural socialism. Um, so that's how I would distinguish these two, although they are intimately linked. And I have no real problem with people using wokeness as long as they're not using it just to sort of decry anything they don't believe in. So right. I think leading it over into the climate and vaccine issue, I think, is, the, is a misuse, a stretching of the concept. Yeah, I would agree with you that some people who we might describe as woke object to the term woke. They see it as a sort of cudgel, a term of abuse, without much real content. What would you say to that? Um, I think it very much has content if used in a consistent way. So I think if we're using it to say this is about um, sacred totems, uh, you know, historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual minority groups, which cannot be offended in any way, because these are the sacred gods. And there's a hierarchy, by the way. One of the reasons that uh, women and trans are in such a bitter battle, feminists and gender-critical feminists and trans, is it's not 100% clear who has more victim points. Probably the trans had slight edge in the sort of victim hierarchy, so they're slightly up to totem pole. They would never be as high as, say, an indigenous uh, community or, or African-Americans on that totem pole. So there is actually a, a victim hierarchy as well, which I think orders the entire religion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also add that two reasons to prefer woke or, or to, to defend it as a meaningful term are one that people to whom it refers at one point referred to themselves as woke up until you know around 2018 people would describe themselves as woke unironically 
so you can't claim something's an insult if people are using it to describe themselves, or at least it's harder to do so. And secondly, it's sort of, it's nice and short and can be used in adjectival and noun forms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it is, it, you know, there, there are obviously two different things. One is how useful is it analytically as a type concept, uh, you know, in terms of constructing type concepts in social theory. And there's a whole nomenclature around that. I think it is useful uh, to describe, as I, as I mentioned, the kind of religious aspect of cultural socialism. Um, but in addition, you know, is it is it useful as a shorthand politically? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like, uh, I mean, you have these some shorthands which break down a little bit on, on closer inspection. But I do think this is actually reasonably robust, can be defined, could be, you could create a scale where you measure it. Now, what I would say is there are kind of two aspects to it. You, you have, because of this, I mean, it's united around this sacralization of these groups. Um, but the ideology clearly, you know, there's two fronts. One is the progressive illiberalism, the way it impinges on the Enlightenment ideas of free speech, due process, equal treatment, objective truth. That's one prong. The other prong is, is where it impinges on majority group identities or male identities or national identities, which is the so-called critical race theory uh, prong. And they are somewhat distinct in their effects, but I think they stem from the same underlying drive in the ideology, which is the, what Jonathan Haidt would call the equality and care harm foundation. Yeah. yeah. I guess one, one argument for, for cultural socialism is that you might be hard-pressed to get woke into an academic paper. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you would. And I'm reviewers might object. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, although I think even cultural socialism, I, I, there's people on Twitter trying to say, oh, well, that's a, a euphemism for cultural Marxism, which is some uh, Nazi trope or, or you know, right. sort of, they're, they're attempting to cancel. It's just the irony of attempting to cancel the term to describe um, cancel culture, you know, so it's, it's, it's um, but yeah, we, we have to be able to have a term, but, but of course, as you say, I mean, it's very hard for academia to study this stuff. They have to tiptoe around this. Yeah, that's, uh, that's now, a point you know, I've tried to make in, in a couple of my Substack articles, that this is, yeah. this is arguably the most profound social change that's happened in this time scale, you know, in recent history, if not ever. I mean, it's amazing how dramatically things shifted in only five or ten years. Uh, and the idea of not even having a term for this is remarkable. Yeah, and you can go to an entire major social sciences conference and not see anything on this issue. Now, there was a panel at the APSA, which I was, which was the virtual APSA, which I was on. There was a paper by Pippa Norris. Um, yes, I know that one. You, yeah. you saw her paper. Yeah. And, and there's actually, I, I was down in... Uh, uh, I was in California. I met Jack Citron in Berkeley and, and uh, Morris Levy at the University of Southern California. They're doing work on progressive liberalism, you know, but how they're, you know, they, they can't use a term like woke. I don't think they've used that term. I mean, it's all about, you know, rising intolerance or absolutism or, or you know, there are ways you can kind of tiptoe towards it. But of course, they're the only ones that are doing anything, you know, in this entire. Yeah, <laughs> that tells you something about who's who's in academia that, that there's so little interest. Okay, well, enough about nomenclature then. So, what's your theory as to where wokeness came from? Um, so, I think you can. It's very interesting. I think there is this 
broader ideology I call left modernism, which is a fusion, if, if you like, of um, cultural modernism, which is the idea of being anti-traditional, anti-bourgeois. So modern art is an example, modern architecture, um, getting away from form and getting away from reflection, and it's about the new and the different. So that's the cultural thrust. Um, which is associated with bohemianism and also alternative lifestyles. That is a, a much older, uh, you know, goes right back to the Fourierism of the 19th century and the anarchism. But then we, this cultural socialism stuff, I think is post 1960s, actually. I mean, you had some mild concern for, I mean, if we talk about identity groups, I mean, yes, you've had your classical liberal attempt at equal rights for women and, and, and African Americans and so on, but it's, well, not until we get to the mid-1960s that we start to see something like Susan Sontag writing in Partisan Review, which is an established left liberal uh, magazine of the New York intellectuals, 1966, saying, you know, the white race is a cancer um, on the planet, and, and essentially the U.S. is a deeply racist, uh, you know, inevitably. I can't remember the exact quote, but, but that just comes out of nowhere. And what's occurring is that you have white leftists who are borrowing the outlook of black power radicals who have this tradition of talking about white devils and so on that goes back to the early 50s. And then you also have the anti-colonial struggles and people like Fanon, which I think is a very important Miles 1961 book, Wretched of the Earth, um, this anti-colonial struggle and taking on board, white leftists taking on board the anti-colonial and black power perspectives um, to really sort of ramp up their rhetoric around uh, white guilt and the and, and, and anti-white. And I think that's kind of a, a very important step. Now, it's building loosely on a kind of older anti-WASP tradition that goes back to the young intellectuals of World War I. But that anti-WASP tradition was more or less saying, Anglo-Protestants are parochial and boring and they have no culture and they're uninteresting and they don't drink and they don't dance. Okay, that's a critique of your own group from a kind of cultural aesthetic point of view. It wasn't so much, you know, white Protestants are oppressors um, and they're a cancer on the planet. You know, that that is taking it really into new territory. Um, and once that occurs, you then get the radical feminist movement and you then get the, you know, the gay movement after the 1969 Stonewall riots and you get the new identity politics piggybacking on this initial black power template. So I'm dating that from sort of, you know, mid-1960s, late 1960s, the emergence. And I, and my view is actually once this paradigm emerges, everything we've seen is just the outworking of that logic. It's nothing really new. Um, now we are, there are some new bits around the therapeutic, psychotherapeutic culture, um, which which infuses and blends in with this. So we get this talk, you know, this concept creep of bullying and trauma and, and, and all of the, uh, which is the ancestor of microaggressions. I mean, that's coming in, in the sort of, the sort of new age, Esalen Institute, human potential, all that stuff is feeding into it. This humanist psychotherapeutic movement uh, fuses in with the new left, starting with, you know, the first, Sensitive, racial sensitivity training is in the late 60s, early 70s, moving through to the 80s and building up steam. So yeah, I think that's where I trace this, this right. from. And, and of course, part of the context of this is the failure, perceived failure of the old white working class to rise up in Western countries. And the, the people like Marcuse and C. Wright Mills and, and others who are turning away from the working class towards, hey, we need a new agent of radical social change and that's going to be 
the third world lumpen proletariat uh, rising up against the colonizer, or it is the uh, you know the inner city black American population plus the students. And, and it was this shift, I think, that's really behind this. So I think what you've done is point out that a lot of the um, intellectual basis for wokeism goes back uh, further than one might suppose, all the way back to the 60s even. But my own experience was that I went to university and and everything was more or less as I expected it to be. And then I guess it was when I was, around the time I began my uh, doctoral studies that I started to notice you know, the, the emergence of cancel culture and, and very extreme opinions about race and sex and trans and so on, i.e. The, the emergence of what I would really identify as wokeness. And, and indeed, um, you know, David Rosado and, and Zach Goldberg have shown with their graphs of newspaper mentions of woke terms and terms like racism and sexism that there was really a kind of woke hockey stick uh, around 2010, 2011, 2012, where the phenomenon really took off. So if the intellectual basis goes back to the 60s, why did everything take off in around 2010, 2011? Well, if you look at Rosado's uh, article where he compares academic abstracts to news articles, I think he has 75 million academic abstracts. So this is from academic papers summarizing what's in the paper. And then he has 25 million news articles from mainstream media. What you see is actually, if you take racism and sexism, just as two terms, woke terms, um, those were already running at a very fair clip starting in the 70s and 80s. And what occurs is actually the news, the media catches up, converges in the 2010s. So they were lagging, and then suddenly they converge on those terms. So academia was already there in the 70s and 80s. Um, and that's, again, getting to my point, which is that this was already current in academia and the media just suddenly caught up. And there's a couple of reasons. One is social media connects academics and journalists in a way that hadn't been true. And also the new kind of journalism that is clickbait based rather than classified ad based. That It's, it's graduates from, from elite universities more than some sort of gumshoe hack who worked his way up. You know, for all of those reasons, you get this infusion, this cross-fertilization, uh, and the media just catches up really in the 2010s. But that's not the origin. The origin is in, in academia goes back a lot further, and the interest goes back a lot further. Now, of course, it's all about scaling up. I say this is a quantitative, not a qualitative shift. In. Now, I can remember, because I am older than you, uh, already in the late 80s, early 90s, when I went to, went to university, I can remember political correctness. You could not easily express a skeptical view on immigration, that would be extremely difficult uh, at that time. Now, um, you could say, well, you weren't being put out of a job. Yeah, there wasn't a social media that they could sort of smear you on social media. But these events and incidents were happening. And I'll just give you a few milestones. So 1965, the Moynihan Report on the Black Family uh, is shelved by the Johnson administration. It seemed to be, again, too hot to handle because it's, it's saying, hey, we've got to actually start thinking about this problem of the breakdown of the black family, even though actually the out-of-wedlock birth rate back then was ridiculously low amongst African-Americans. I think it was only around 20 or 25 percent, which would be seen as as magnificent today. Um, But 1965, and then you have other 
marks on the road, Arthur Jensen, uh, you know, 1969, there was an open letter by many of his colleagues to get his article retracted from, I think, the Harvard publication. And then E.O. Wilson in 1975, and then you had, you know, being attacked by his colleagues uh, for political reasons, talking about, you know, the, the evolutionary basis of human uh, behavior and psychology. And then you have um, James Coleman, the American sociologist, who, who, because he's saying that busing is actually producing white flight, there are people picketing his uh, American Sociological Association speech with kind of Nazi signs. So, uh, well, now, and, and, and there are always a, a number of these events going on, just that the frequency wasn't as high as it later becomes. So I don't think it all started with Nicholas Christakis in 2015. That is the beginning of a of an increase in amplitude, but um, you can find uh, episodes. One happened in 1995, I always recounted, University of British Columbia, the political science department was utterly paralyzed by these nonspecific uh, allegations of pervasive uh, systemic racism and, and sexism. And of course, there were no actual individuals or events. And there was this $200,000 consultant that came in and, and, and took all these statements. And in the end, it just devolved into this big joke. But just to say that all the doors were open, and I think they've been open since the mid-60s. It's just doors. It's just a matter of the supply side. How many activists are able to get organized uh, and push on these open doors? Because I don't think there was really any resistance, even even in my early days, in, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, I didn't see any uh, real resistance to this. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're certainly right that people, act, prominent academics have been getting cancelled for decades. Uh, Michael Woodley and I have a paper on this re- relating to intelligence research where we kind of chronicle all the major controversies in the field uh, going back to the 60s. And not yeah, in addition to Arthur Jensen, there was William Shockley and Philip Rushton, Charles Murray, of course, and, and many others. Um, but that I mean, does... Yeah, I was going to say, I remember because Rushton was at Western, where I went to University of Western Ontario, and I remember the debate he had with um, David Suzuki. Mm. And, and now, of course, it's interesting that that went ahead, right? I mean, there was a lot of people who were saying it shouldn't have gone ahead. Now, you could say, well, that meant cancel culture was weaker. I- I'm not sure... I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think it's just that the number of people that were mobilized to shut it down was too small. Um, But I I don't think the sentiment, the views that he was an unacceptable person and shouldn't be speaking, I don't think that that view was really any different. It's just that they didn't have the power to shut it down or the organization to shut it down. So one impression I got from from looking into the history of controversies in intelligence research is that students have always been very radical and they haven't necessarily gotten that much more radical in respect of their attitudes on campus but that academics have become substantially more willing to join with the students in professing very radical viewpoints and acting upon them was that does that fit with your experience or I think, again, this is a quantitative shift. So there's no question even back in the late 60s with, you know, Black Panthers occupying buildings armed with rifles and and, and, and striking for a year until, you know, all of these crazy things that were happening in the late 60s, there were academics who supported that. Um, but I think the balance, most academics were, were opposed. And, and so I, whereas I think today you might get a different tilt. So I think 
it's all about the relative numbers. We know that academia in the mid-60s was about one and a half on the left and one on the right. And it's now six to one in the US and about five to one in Britain. And in the social sciences, it's gone from sort of three to one to 12, 13, 14 to one. So the tilt is just much more extreme, which is why I think there's just more support and less resistance. Yeah, you do have episodes in the 60s where the faculty would vote against the student position as to, and to restore order. And I'm just skeptical whether that would occur nowadays. Me too. The, um, the, the disciplines where, where woke activism is most pronounced, i.e. gender and race studies and other similar disciplines, were not as um, well developed back in the 60s as they are now. I, I assume they didn't they comprised a smaller share of, you know, the total faculty. Uh, is that? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's very interesting, though, to look at the origins. You, you're probably aware of this, right? I mean, the University of San Francisco, there was um, uh, essentially the you know, students, radical black and perhaps some of, some white students for democratic societies, uh, you know, they struck at the uh, University of San Francisco in 1968 demanding 50 black studies positions um, and all yes. of that, that any black student be admitted. And and they were at this for a year and they got most of what they wanted. And the same thing occurs at, at a number of other universities. In Cornell, that was a demand. So the birth of the, the grievance studies programs is explicitly and nakedly political. It was by force, not by, oh, look, there's a lot of demand from students for this kind of program so we should cater to it no it was it was by force it was very political and yeah it very much gathers steam and builds up and that of course then produces more graduates who can staff the the unfolding edi bureaucracy and, and this is all about producing more minions more supply which i think is critical is is a rising supply side yeah more academics tilts the balance in academia further and further to the left and yeah it's all about building up supply I just think the doors were, were always open because people didn't have a good reply um, to, hey, <clears throat> we want 50 black studies position. What's your answer to that? If you, if you disagree with that, you are racist. And people didn't have an answer um, yeah. other than capitulation. <laughs> so we've mentioned social media and the increasing left-wing tilt of universities as two important factors. What do you make of um, Richard Hanania's arguments concerning uh, the Civil Rights Act and associated legal uh, rulings? Um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting argument. Um, I am relatively skeptical. I would, I mean, I'm much more a believer that this is about a mind virus of cultural norms uh, that are spreading and, and you know, capturing certain departments and certain nodes and propagating themselves. Um, and a couple of, I mean, Charles Spain Lehman in, in City Journal talks through um, <clears throat> some of these decisions. So, for example, if you look even at the court decisions, uh, uh, Duke Power, Briggs versus Duke Power, 1971, right? I mean, with this disparate impact ruling that any uh, policy or company policy that has a disparate impact on, say, African Americans compared to whites is is essentially outlawed. Well, actually, the initial court ruling circumscribes this just to Duke Power, which is a company that did have naked, old-style racial discrimination, right? And so they clearly were a company that practiced that older, 
uh, version of, of, of racial discrimination that no one would would quibble with. Um, and then they had then in a, enacted this policy, which had this disparate impact in, in terms of screening out more black applicants. And the court decision uh, was quite clear that this this is the context in which to read this decision. Um, but subsequent court rulings disregarded that and interpreted much more broadly to say, oh no, anything that has a disparate impact um, is going to be considered a violation. And that's an example of what I mean, is this activist judicial interpretation. Uh, similarly with hostile environment, creating a hostile environment at work uh, in the 1978, and also with um, diversity and affirmative action. And all of these things have been interpreted expansively by a, an activist judicial culture. And, and Barack Obama even, even you know, admit, as much as admitted that the court had been um, activist in its interpretations and that this was maybe not the greatest idea. Um, and similarly, you can you know, what you saw when Ronald Reagan uh, dialed back a lot of the um, affirmative action provisions is that corporations just kept right on going. I mean, even though their liability was drastically reduced and curtailed as a result of Reagan's activism, or not activism, Reagan's executive orders, um, the companies were committed because this is cultural. And, and I think uh, that's where I kind of more buy into Shelby Steele's analysis in the book White Guilt where he says that these policies like affirmative action, they're not meant to solve a problem. They are a way of virtue signaling moral authority. Um, and so the idea there is that for Steele is that, you know, these are all signals the company, because for Steele, he says, you know, whites and, and the American institutions lost moral authority when they admitted culpability um, with the Civil Rights Act. And therefore, moral authority passed from um you know, white Americans to black Americans from American institutions. Um, and in order to, re to regain or hold on to moral authority, they had to signal that, hey, we're not racist. We have to dissociate ourselves um, from what's become the biggest stigma in public morality. And that that is really what's what's driving it, not concrete legal liability. Yeah, on the, and I think that, yeah. On the corporations, one... Um, theory as to the origins of wokeness, as to the reason why the phenomenon took off so precipitously around 2010 is, as several people have argued, that this was around the time of the Occupy Wall Street protests. And the theory goes that companies saw these protests and got scared and so they adopted, uh, you know, woke practices, putting the LGBT flag in their logo, doubling down on affirmative action, etc., in order to um, forestall, you know, attacks from the economic left. Right, let's make the conversation about racism, not about um, uh, the concerns of the Occupy Wall Street protesters. Ed West, the, um, the conservative writer, had an interesting article about this quite early on, where he noted that S Starbucks had, um, after a major tax scandal, introduced this talk about race with your barista concept. <laughs> and they were effectively saying, never mind our tax affairs, let's talk about how awful racism is. So what do you make of that sort of co corporations well, think, as, as devious, woke entities theory? Well, I think, I think it's certainly easier for them to talk about identity than it is for them to talk about uh, class or exploitation. I, I would agree with that. I guess I just don't tend to believe that that's the driver. I, I mean, 
it's a bit, I take a kind of Weberian approach. You know, Max Weber, the, the sociologist, has this this view that, that culture is the switchman and then um, the, the track, the locomotive of self-interest then goes down wherever the switchman has moved the track. And I think that's kind of the same in this case, is that once the cardinal North Star values of the society were around signaling anti-racism, um, you started to get affirmative action, you started to get racial sensitivity training. All of these things are dating from the 70s and 80s. And there's also the gender aspect and the pay equity and various kinds of gender equity policies that are, are being uh, you know, promoted. Uh, and this all goes back to the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and it's not... Uh, it's not a 20s, 10s development. Um, and so I don't, I, I'm less convinced that there's something qualitatively different that's occurring in the 2010s. I mean, woke, woke corporation, it just didn't have the same name, but it certainly was going on. Uh, I mean, if you think of something like affirmative action or on race and gender um, and, and, and signaling around hostile environment, I mean, I think that's very much a part of this. So, and, and also the, a lot of the energy of this is coming from the campus um, in the 2010s rather, I mean, the corporations are following to some degree in the wake of this, uh, but you know, not just Yale and Evergreen State and these other places, but it's not clearly clear what the, what the pecuniary motive would be for, for things to kick off in these universities and for no platformings to take off and, and, and cancel culture. Yeah, so the way, I, the way I reconcile the two is via the concept of the bootlegger Baptist coalition. I don't know whether you read my Substack article. I did read that. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah um, tell me a bit about a bit more about that, and I, I recall yeah. reading it. Yeah. It's this concept that libertarians are very fond of for explaining, you know, bad regulations. And the classic example is from the Prohibition era when uh, bootleggers and Baptists each had their own separate reasons for favoring uh, prohibition. Baptists for moral reasons and bootleggers because they could make a profit. Uh, and so there was a, a kind of coalition, although it's not clear how, how overt this was. But in any case, they were, they were fighting for the same cause. And the um, advocates of this theory believe it, can, believe it applies to many different uh, similar examples in the economy, and one 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 such place where it might apply is wokeness. And the, in in this case, the bootleggers would be the, um, the 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 corporations who are trying to shift the conversation away from you know their tax scandals and and the you know salaries of their chief executives. And the Baptists are the you know self righteous activists on social media and at universities who who have you know ide- who are more ideologically motivated. Well, I mean, I guess my, I mean, I think there is certainly, you know, self-interest is playing some role in this, but what I've, you know, heard, and of course the piece begs further research, but is that employee activism, particularly young employees uh, entering into these organizations has been a major driver in Silicon Valley. And and if you look at the New York, what happened at the New York Times or other newspapers, um, it's these Slack channels and, you know, it's, you know, so pleasing one's um, credentialed young employees that are coming in with these new ideas is, in my view, a major driver of, of corporate wokeness. Now, you also have to consider your brand in relation to a marketplace, and maybe that is uh, somewhat self-interested, but it's not clear to me that that this necessarily pays. I mean, this sort of go woke, go broke, it may not entirely be the case, but we've seen many more examples, I think, of 
um, companies pushing wokeness and getting hurt by it, whether it be Disney, whether it be Nike, uh, then we've seen the reverse. You know, how many companies have said, we're going all in on anti-woke, lose a bunch of money and then decide to be woke? I, I don't know. I, don't, I can't think of many examples of that. So that's sort of telling me, I think, that companies are feeling pressures to be woke from the culture and, and peer pressures from other from their competitors and perhaps from segments of their consumer base, maybe who are more activists and boycotting or being online. Uh, you know, we know the progressive activists are a punch about five times above their weight on Twitter compared to the general population. So I still think this is predominantly a cultural movement. It's just that you are getting these employees, young employees coming into corporations and forcing them um, to some degree to act. So I, I guess I'm more skeptical of the kind of neo-Marxian type of self-interest argument. Yeah, that's a good point about the, the young employees bringing their you know, university culture with them. Another factor that I've written about and Richard Hanani has written about and, and several other people as well is the influx of women into the workforce and in particular into universities, uh, which is relevant insofar as women consistently compared to men are less pro free speech and more pro uh, you know, harm avoidance and conflict avoidance and hence in the end woker what do you make of this theory yeah yeah i think i mean there's no question that the data on young people particularly young single people shows a massive gender split and yes, so to the extent that you have a higher, um, more female workforce, you, you are statistically probably going to get more activists. Um, and and so I think there's something to that. I mean, I guess, however, against that, one has to, one notices woke police forces and woke defense contractors and, and the Navy. Um, and so it is not 100% clear whether... It's just a story about uh, the the sort of number of woke employees or how active they are. I mean, I do think this is a, a factor. But I, one of the things I'm increasingly coming to think, the way I'm coming to think about this issue is that we've got two phenomena. One is, and this is sort of using terms from nationalism theory, but we've got a kind of banal wokeness, which is all about kinder, gentler, nicer and very hypersensitive to the feelings of disadvantaged groups. And that is something that dates sort of from the 60s, 70s, has a longer tail to it, and it's more a question of turning the dial up from five to six to seven to eight and over time. And that's kind of a public morality issue. Um, so that, whereas the hot wokeness, the kind of cancel culture, the boycotts, the, 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 the demonstrations and outrage mobs and all of that is, which is the hot hot woke activism, which definitely has increased as well dramatically. But it wouldn't, you couldn't have these hot woke uh, fundamentalist outbreaks without that tissue of public morality laid down by banal wokeness, which has kind of gradually seeped in uh, over time. And, and that, that's one of the reasons that why you will even find it in the police and the military where you'd, you'd have imagined there's very few actual woke um, officers and yet they still feel obligated to virtue signal uh, which is interesting to me you know you can see it in the university where the um, the staff are going to be heavily left-wing and, and heavily you know a significant number are going to be woke but 
in the military and defense industries and policing. I mean, that, that I think is telling us just the power of this sort of banal public morality that has developed, yeah. which means, yeah, even a few activists can, can completely turn the thing around. Yeah, there's an interesting difference between the U.S. and the U.K., it seems, in regard to the police. In the U.K., the police are, seem to be really woke. I mean, cars plastered with LGBT flags and dancing along at Pride festivals and so on, whereas in, in the U.S., the police have you know almost the opposite reputation that they're sort of racist yeah, rednecks going around shooting innocent people for sport. I wonder why <laughs> that is. <laughs> that, that is really interesting, and I'm, I'm trying to remember how any U.S. police forces said woke things. I mean, it's a bit tougher when people are saying defund you. You know, it's pretty hard to then be woke when they're targeting you directly. I mean, I think that's one issue, um, is this very adversarial position between woke and the police. In, in Yeah, maybe something past. to do with how the police forces are, are run I mean, and the, the sort of the, the structure of policing in, in the two countries. I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I do remember, for example, during, you know, California's Proposition 187, which was um, trying to restrict public services to illegal immigrants in the mid-1990s. And the LAPD chief Gates uh, came out in against um, Prop 187. You know, so now that wasn't, a, you could say that's not a woke issue, but he felt that he had to be counted amongst all the state elites that were going against this. Um, so, you know, I mean, I do think those pressures are there, but I just think maybe in the case of the U.S., the woke side is so anti-police um, that it's almost impossible for, for you to actually keep a straight face. Yeah, that, and, could, and that could be. <laughs> I mean, whereas in Britain, it's, it's is there, but it's maybe less so. I mean, the other thing I've heard, by the way, in the U.K. police is that the wokeness very much comes out of this pipeline of university graduates that go into, without actually doing any work on the beat, um, they go straight into these kind of more administrative HR type or, or um, investigative positions. And so there is a cadre of university educated people in these police forces, which is divorced from the rank and file officers. Uh, and and there's a split and tension between these two in these police forces. Um, so, but again, that that would be a very interesting comparative study. Yeah. On a, another comparative question then: Why do you think wokeness is so much less prominent in countries like France than it is in the Anglosphere, especially given that some of the intellectual um, foundations of wokeness arguably trace back to you know, French philosophers? Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a really interesting one. I mean, the first thing I say is we. I mean, do we we don't have a ton of data, and we don't we can't say for sure that wokeness is not an issue in France. I mean, the Pippa Norris's that that survey she did on um, wokery, which was multi-country, did sort of show that many European countries had the same phenomenon. And I know Germany and the Nor the, the, the Scandinavian countries definitely have it. I mean, there are examples in Sweden of where people have had to have 40% female on reading lists where you're studying the far right, you know, it's, it's, or far right authors. Um, yeah, it's crazy stuff that, that, that is going on there. I mean, France, I mean, there is, uh, you know, there's more resistance, perhaps one of the benefits they have is to be able to cast this as an as sort of Anglo-Saxon thing. So I think, and if you look at news stories, I've seen data which shows that, um, social justice terminology 
has gone up in, in France as well, but it just hasn't gone up to the same extent as in the Anglo countries. So I, th- I think there's a spectrum. They are getting it. And I've heard there have been cancel culture incidents uh, and I'm scratching my head to try and remember what they were. But at, at, at French universities, they have had um, academics canceled. So huh. it, it, it exists. It's just not as pervasive. So one factor that I, had occurred to me is that the universities, uh, unless I'm mistaken, in France tend to be run on lower budgets and students tend to pay much lower fees or no fees at all as compared to the UK and especially the US where they pay exorbitant fees and hence they you know demand to be treated more like consumers in the anglosphere um i think that could be a factor i mean i think yeah it could be a factor i I mean i think the fees in britain are not i mean they've gone up a lot no there's no question about that but a lot of british universities are also relatively impoverished in the sense of not being able to hire the kind of DEI administrator class to the same extent as the U.S. Uh, But you're right, maybe in France the the student is still uh, deferring to uh, the professor. I'm not sure. Um, But I do know that they have got cancel culture, they have got these debates, but I think there is a stronger pushback. I think it helps to, like in Quebec as well, they've been able to sort of paint this as an Anglo thing and, and paint it as a kind of patriotically Quebec thing not to sort of fall for, for this. Um, and maybe that's an, a partial bulwark yeah. uh, against it, yeah. So moving on then, um, Elon Musk, as everyone knows, recently purchased Twitter and so far seems to have uh, implemented... Free, pro-free speech reforms that those of us concerned about uh, wokeness uh, welcome with open arms. Does this mean that wokeness is in decline, or what do the data tell you? Um, I definitely think wokeness is not in decline. Now, there are ripples on the surface. There's no question that the George Floyd 2020 moment was uh, a sort of short-term peak, and some of the energy is, has ebbed away. Um, and I know a number of us, some of the cancel, cancel culture pressure is no longer as, as intense as it was. Um, but no, I definitely think that long term it's on the rise. Um, and why I say that is largely generational. If you look at the any survey data that I've seen and conducted a lot of it myself, uh, next to left-right ideology, age is the strongest predictor of being woke. So the younger you are, the woker you are. Uh, a couple of, just a few... Uh, uh, a few data points, really. So from my latest policy exchange report, you can see, um, you know, was the Sussex BC right to stand behind um, Kathleen Stock as uh, free speech rights? Uh, 18 to 25, slightly more say no, like they were critical of the VC for standing up for Kathleen Stock compared to yes. So that's where public opinion is amongst the 18 to 25. For the 50 plus, it's like 85% pro Kathleen Stock, 5% against. Same with dropping J.K. Rowling uh, by her publisher. It's like 50-50 amongst the 1825s, and it's 85 to 5 for the 50 pluses. This this is Uh, another interesting area, is it not, where European uh, young people are substantially different from those in Britain. Aren't aren't they voting uh, in record numbers for parties on the far right? It's, it's, it's difficult. Yes, they are. Is The answer is yes. Um, but what we don't know is 
we, we need to poll on these questions in Europe, and, and I haven't seen enough data on that. I think what's occurring is there is a woke element even in continental Europe, uh, European populations, but it's probably smaller, and the non-woke element is more mobilized, say, to to vote for Maloney or for Le Pen. Uh, now, the other thing is the it's it's more the kind of middle age group that is the strongest populist right segment uh, in Italy. The younger ones are a little bit less. Uh, populist right and the older ones who are used to voting traditional parties are less populist right. So I, I don't think continental Europe is, is a complete woke-free zone, no. Um, but it's just that these things are much much worse, uh, much more intensely uh, than the Anglo countries. Yeah, certainly the data um, I've seen suggests that the age effect on on you know indicators like support for or, or having woke beliefs or support for certain kinds of parties is much stronger in Britain uh, than it is on the continent. Yeah, I mean, it is. And I think Britain is, is I, I say, a slight outlier. It has the most extreme age profile. Um, you can see that in voting where you know, prior to the Conservatives' recent plunge in the polls, let's just say, there was about a 45 point, 40 to 45 point difference between the uh, over 65s and the under 25s. Uh, and that number, that 45 point gap was more like a 20, 25 point gap, say in the United States. Um, it's of course affected by many things. Like in Canada, there's very little gap between the young and the old because the liberals have been in power for so long that you know if you're against anybody, it's gonna be whoever's in power. The young are probably wanting a change. Um, so there are many different factors that play mm. into this, but I would say the age factor is absolutely massive. I mean, the U.S. case, you know, as in Britain, if you take the James DeBoer firing two-thirds of the 18 to 25s, support Google firing James DeBoer compared to like a quarter to a third of the over 60s or over 50s. So, you know, or even if we look at academics in terms of favoring cancel culture in, in the work I've done on the US, UK, and Canada, similar results that it's those young academics under 35, twice as likely to support firing or pushing out controversial academics than, than their older counterparts. So what's what this means is that as this generation, millennials and Gen Z, enter and become the median voter and the median worker, um, we're going to see more institutionalized wokery and less resistance to it. Right. Well, that doesn't bode well for the future. What, what's your um, explanation for the age effect? Why are the one? Why are the young in in Britain and America, and, and perhaps to a slightly lesser extent elsewhere, so much woker than older generations? Um, I don't believe in the height Lukianov they weren't allowed to play outside theory. I, I think this is largely the result of successful indoctrination, um, largely ideas coming off campus into celebrity culture and social media is the main conduit for the indoctrination, peer-to-peer -peer indoctrination, but the schools are reinforcing this, um, and the data that we've seen, so uh, students that receive more critical race theory, critical social justice teaching um, are more politically correct in Britain, and in the U.S., massively more uh, supportive of critical race theory ideas. And so I think the, the, the trajectory is one of cultural, straight up, old-fashioned cultural indoctrination that's just reached a critical mass. Um, 
Morris Levy and, and Jack Citrin and Dennis Chong's paper, which looked at general social survey data going back to 1972, um, tolerance for a racist speaker, a militarist speaker, a, a homosexual speaker. So you, what you see is generally, if you compare uh, an 18-year-old university student in 1972, 1982, even as late as 2000, um, but particularly in those earlier decades with the same age person in 2016 or 20 in the mid 2010s um the mid 2010s individuals just much less tolerant of a racist speaker uh whereas they've gotten more tolerant of all the other types of speaker including a militarist um and so it's really anything around identity has just become particularly toxic and i think that's a deliberate ideological institutionalization a successful um, um, cultural shift towards cultural socialism, really. It's as simple as that. Um, and I just think this is the mind virus that's infected them. Um, now, I won't say it's all of them. I mean, among the young generation, they're clearly split. And so there's also a very strong anti-woke element amongst the young, particularly amongst young men. But uh, it's very much, I think, a straightforward cultural shift. In, uh, in previous generations, the dominant culture was very different and you know go, you go back far enough uh, the dominant culture was uh, very conservative and traditional um, yet people in those times spoke at least anecdotally about you know youthful rebellion against that dominant culture why aren't we seeing the same thing today why are young people simply imbibing you know woke culture rather than rebelling against it yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I suppose the question is how much young people, you know, we, there are obviously examples like the Cultural Revolution in China where young people were very much the shock troops of the regime. Mm. Um, and so we have different examples from history where sometimes the young people are very much in the forefront of authoritarianism and carrying out the wishes of a certain kind of elite. Uh, even the Islamic revival and, and Islamic fundamentalism, which was also had a very strong young student component to it. Yeah, I mean, it was, you could say that that, that was re a rebellion against um, Arab nationalism and the regime. Um, so I think what's going on now is you are getting uh, rebellion amongst a section of the younger male um, young men. But the, I think... The Jordan and, Peterson and some, crowd. <laughs> Yeah, and some young women, I saw a study that showed that those who are online more are more conservative amongst young people. And I think there is no question that online is the place that a lot of these young people are getting uh, their countercultural anti-woke ideas. So that is a, that's certainly a strong chunk. It may only be 25% in some cases. It may be larger in, in other cases. That exists, but it's a minority. Most are just going along to get along. Uh, which has kind of also probably been a major impetus amongst young people, even, you know, even during the, the height of the 1960s student revolts. I mean, that wasn't necessarily the entire student body. I mean, those young people went on to, to become Reagan and Nixon voters. And, and uh, you know, particularly young women, you know, in 1970, young young women were more conservative than, than men. I mean, students, young young female students. Um, so I think we maybe underestimate the amount of conformity that was occurring back in the more conservative periods uh, because we're drawn to what was different. Yeah, fair point. So in the last 10 minutes then, let's discuss possible strategies for counteracting wokeness. Um, 
What do you make of the proposals that some people have made? Sir Roger Scruton, before he died, made this proposal that we just should defund universities or at least defund large sections of the um, university, the, the social sciences and humanities even, leaving only perhaps the mathematics and you know hard sciences faculties. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I think that'll be very hard politically to do. I mean, these are worthwhile disciplines if they were taught correctly, if the research was done correctly. And the, the, the thing is, there is still a lot of useful research being done, you know, electoral studies and roll call voting and whatever. Um, I just think that's, that's politically quite tricky. I mean, what I saw, for example, I was at the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference, and there was this real split between the libertarians who were all about, oh, no, um, we'll either set up our own institutions or we'll have school choice or we'll have lawfare and somehow uh, the good will drive out the bad. I don't really believe that that's possible in the case of academia where there are first mover advantages, there are network effects like, like uh, endowments and alumni and reputations. You can't just overthrow that. Um, it's a bit like uh, you have two strategies, the Gab and Parler and Getter strategy or the Elon Musk strategy, which is going to yes. have a bigger impact. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess I am much more of, of the view that, yes, we have to have these spaces where conservative intellectualism can continue and can thrive. So, yes, we do need University of Austin and we need these independent institutions and centers like the I, I, there's one at the University of Arizona, and there's at University of Texas in Tennessee. There are a number of these centers that are heterodox, but more, I actually think the bigger thing that we need to do is is governments really need to start becoming much more intrusive and hands-on with these institutions. And actually, we need a not a devolution, but a recentralization of certain kinds of power away from institutions. Um, uh, public institutions and public agencies and bodies. Uh, and what that means is that because elected government is really the only institution that the anti-woke majority can really hope to control. And so it's going to have to fight with the institution that it has. Um, and that means that that government is going to have to fight the culture war when conservatives, uh, when the right is in power. This is going to have to become a much bigger priority. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means much more, much tighter guidance, much sort of more fine grain. So instead of saying, in the UK, for example, it's it's illegal for schools to politically indoctrinate. But the guidance on this is much too baggy. Uh, and, and schools are just able to sort of, you know, go drive a train through these loopholes. So when you say anti-racism is a consensus value, but you can't advocate for BLM, that's really what the guidance, that's the state of the current guidance. Well, they'll say, oh, no, we're not, uh, uh, we're just pushing the consensus value of anti-racism by talking about Ibram X. Kendi and, and structural racism. What you actually have to do is write that guidance to say, this is how we define racism. Structural racism is, is a politicized contested concept which should not be taught as fact or as consensus value and if you do that you're violating the section 406 407 impartiality guidance and you're subject subject to a fine and other forms of discipline that's the kind of fine-grained example that i think we need whether that's in the u.s through executive orders title nine guidance or in the uk um, guidance around the equality act and, and so it's getting into this legal 
minutia. Or, or similarly with universities, you know, they should not be allowed to issue any political statements where there's a bigger, more than a 20-point partisan gap. So whether that be around, uh, you know, BLM or climate or whatever, uh, you know, whatever is contentious. I mean, maybe not global warming, but maybe certain kinds of issues where there is a real political contestation. Universities should be fined uh, rising amounts of money if they, if they take these political positions. Those are just some examples yeah. of the kinds of things that are not being, none of this is being done. Now, the, the only people that are doing a little bit of this is Ron DeSantis in Florida and Glenn Youngkin on the CRT bans in schools, which I, I think is a great idea. Shouldn't be done in universities for academic freedom reasons, but definitely that's that kind of thing needs to happen a lot more. Yeah, no, I agree with you about the need to distinguish between universities and schools. Um, but you, do you think that if, for example, the Tories or or what is this other party, Reform, led by Nigel yeah. Farage, came into the next election saying, um, you know, the you know the working class has been sidelined for the last couple of decades, so we're going to abolish the bottom fifty percent of universities, with the exception of you know maths and and science, and we're going to allocate that money to you know apprenticeship schemes or, or building infrastructure in you know. Uh, underserved parts of Britain. You, you don't think that would be an electoral winner? It might be. My worry is that a lot of the lower-end universities are in places where um, the university is very important for employment in the town. And and, and so mm. I think you would be on the hook. On, you'd be in a very difficult political debate. It would depend if they were in a conservative constituency or not. I, I don't actually think the cut approach is actually the best approach. And I take the same view on the BBC, by the way, because really the importance lies with the elite institutions and universities, and they're going to be totally unaffected by this. What I would rather, where I'd rather see the scarce political capital expended is to be much more hands-on and intrusive and start levying fines, things like the Academic Freedom Bill. If we had a very proactive um, academic freedom czar if the government is leaning heavily on Ofsted and uh, the, these departments, or in the, in the U.S. case, on, on these agencies, um, issuing fines, any you know, people are getting fired for indoctrination that's leaking to the press and putting a chill throughout the entire sector. That is where we need to go. It's qualitative, getting into the weeds of definitions, having an official definition of racism. That's where I'd like to see things go. Or BBC impartiality, having um, big data algorithms that can actually say, no, sorry, BBC, your output is looking more like The Guardian, which, which as David Rosado's work shows, it does, essentially putting them under the gun qualitatively. Uh, and because the thing is, if you cut the BBC, they then just become um, a, a private broadcaster that goes incredibly woke, uh, and you've lost a huge amount of cultural power. I, I'd much rather have to you know keep the money I, I don't think cutting is the solution i actually think you're going to have to get serious about cultural content policing uh, i don't mean policing in terms of not allowing free speech but essentially impartiality yeah uh, has to be enforced throughout the civil service throughout the nhs throughout education uh and doing that in a very public way i, th- I think that's the way forward yeah i agree with you about the bbc i actually don't think the bbc is as bad as lots of Conservatism writers claim. I'd much, I'd much sooner go to the BBC than major right-wing news networks in in America for for certain things. Um, but 
what about the following idea? Uh, universities are recognized as universities until they violate their um, telos, uh, as Jonathan Haidt might say, whereupon the government takes away their right to call themselves a university. So if, if they fire too many people or if they issue too many political statements, that they will no longer be allowed to call themselves a university. They have to call themselves something else. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I, I'm just thinking, you know, legally and administratively, it might be easier to be issuing fines and that leaking to the press. And perhaps you have a ramping up of fines or an increase. Of, you know, I, I don't know how you do it. I suppose, yeah, you're thinking of a university that's willing to just take fine after fine. Um, I guess if it doesn't solve the problem, then you probably have to look to more drastic measures. My worry is that they would then find some legal angle that would say, you know, legally you can't do yeah, this it's for probably, whatever reason. It's probably a non I, I just I think it's trickier. <laughs> yeah. But I do think you could probably target defunding of certain things. I mean, maybe equity and diversity. Uh, I think there needs to be an audit of EDI that anything that is seen as not politically neutral. And so anything that's critical race adjacent or related will be tagged as political and therefore out of bounds. I mean, I think that approach, the political discrimination, I mean, this is one of the things I think really needs to be enhanced, which is cracking down on political discrimination. So anything you're doing on um, inclusion, equity, diversity for race and gender, you've got to match with inclusion um, and equity and diversity for politics and ideology. And I think that would bring a real discipline uh, to these. But could, but could that work? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, is, it is possible to fake your race, as we've seen from a number of prominent cases in the US, but it's, it's pretty difficult. Whereas you can easily fake your politics. You can say, yes, I'm a conservative. I'd like to have a job here. And then day one, you say, well, of course, I'm, of course I'm liberal like everyone else. Well, I mean, of course, the uh, you know these would just be monitored generally quietly um, on forms, right? And so it's not necessarily the case that you at a job talk say I'm a conservative. Um, I do think, however, that it would really you know if we could see that you know a certain number of applicants for jobs were conservative and the number hired was much smaller. You could start to do audits. You could start to say, oh, well, look, um, University of, of, of Reading or wherever, uh, you have this many of your applicants that were signaling that they are conservative and this many were hired or, or this many are, are, are professors. You could start, I mean, if, you know, I, I guess the ideal world, in the ideal world, you wouldn't have any of this stuff. But if what you could say is, look, if you're, anything you're doing on race and gender, anything you say you're doing, like decolonizing the curriculum, Fine. Okay. So, so tell us how you're injecting more conservatives into the curriculum, in equal measure. And if you're not doing it in equal measure, um, then you're going to be marked down, or perhaps there may be consequences, funding-wise. That's an example of where, you know, this and this isn't an affirmative action program because if they wanted to say we're not doing anything on race and gender, then you don't have to do anything on politics, uh, but you can't do one and not the other. And and actually, if you poll on this. There's overwhelming, you know, majority bipartisan support for putting as much emphasis on political diversity as race and gender amongst uh, people of both uh, labor, conservative, Republican, Democrats. So I think that would be a, a definitely a way uh, forward, uh, along with the sort of Calvin report, uh, polit political impartiality guidelines and the political neutrality across all 
government bodies. So do you, do you know much about uh, what's going on in Hungary? And if so, do you think that's going too far? Or is that more or less what you have in mind? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not... So I'm sort of a believer in, in procedural liberalism and academic freedom. And, I, and my understanding is some of that hasn't been respected in Hungary. But again, I, I don't know completely what the details were around the Central European University. It does seem as though they were told you can't teach gender studies or something like this, uh, which I, I, don't, I, I don't agree. And look, if people want to, uh, you know, take stupid things and people want to teach stupid things, I think at the university level, I think you kind of got to do that. What I would say, however, is I think it's legitimate. I don't think it's legitimate to have CRT bans uh, at universities, but I do think you, it would be legitimate to say, well, you have to put a kind of cigarette warning label, like um, a, a green sticker on any uh, course where Trigger people warning. are expected to, to regurgitate this stuff to get marks. And as long as you are comfortable doing that, fine. So we're not going to ban you doing it. But on the other hand, just this is like heads up and you're not allowed to conceal it. I assume that university uh, in Hungary was not state-funded, but I don't know. Because one, one could, in principle, make a case for pr the government prohibiting state-funded universities from offering certain types of courses, you know, if whether it was a, a you know, gender studies course or you know, a similar course saying, you know, the case for traditional gender relations as opposed to something more impartial in between. Yeah, I think, you mean, I think I'd be uncomfortable with, with outright bans simply on the academic freedom grounds. When you have the state determining the curriculum, I think that's, that's, that's a tricky thing at the university level. I mean, you can have issues clearly if you taught that, you know, white people are, are superior and black, and black people are awful. You know, there are clearly certain kinds of civil rights law, equality law grounds to prevent that. And, and that should be applied equally to the reverse where you're talking about white people in a certain way. So I, I think then a, there, there are certain limits that could be legitimately applied. But in general, um, I, I wouldn't want to see the state doing that. Now, we, we can talk about funding. I mean, I guess the problem with funding... Uh, is, you know, again, if you're saying the state's going to be very conditional on what it funds, I guess it can do that. Um, I guess I don't, I don't know where, I mean, I still think on academic freedom grounds that might be tricky. I'd rather see these things simply flagged up with, with warning labels. In, a, in an ideal yeah. world, that would be a reasonable amount of political diversity at, at most universities, even if it wasn't, you know, 50-50. And as a consequence, the government could uh, feel comfortable um, delegating decisions about what courses to offer to the universities themselves, to the academics themselves. But given how lopsided the uh, political, um, the distribution of political views is in most universities, that um, you, you, the government can't do that comfortably anymore. I, which would suggest there's a role for intervention. Yeah, there is a role for intervention, and I think it just needs to be done on a, on a legally and philosophically consistent principle basis. So I think the way I would do it is this idea of um, equivalent action between race, gender, EDI, and political and ideological EDI. So uh, that's one thing that I would definitely enforce. I'd enforce political impartiality from any official university account or anyone in an official university position down to department heads, for example, 
in any official capacity, you are not allowed to take political positions where there is more than a 20-point partisan gap. That's, again, something I'd enforce, including through a, a fines regime. Uh, if you are going to express an opinion, you have to preface it by, this is not the opinion of the institution, it's my personal opinion. Um, so I think all of that would be would be useful. Now, in terms of, I also think, by the way, there, you know, I guess as part of this political EDI, if you like, you know, we've seen in the case of uh, Arizona State, um, sorry, not University of Arizona, Arizona State and uh, University of Texas, Salem Center and a few others, these sort of more heterodox centers that have received funding from red state legislatures, that kind of, uh, if you like, political diversity funding, that could be another way forward mm. to try and proactively fund these islands of uh, heterodoxy. Um, so I think that along with the equivalent action, along with the uh, emphasis on political non-discrimination, political um, diversity and inclusion to match the race and gender stuff, um, plus, you know, I think I think that would help to turn the ship around. Um, so not entirely, but yeah, but but I don't think I think the Hungarian. I mean, if you're tipping into illiberalism and violations of academic freedom, I think that's a problem. Except where I mean, you saw with East Germany, the old communist historians were were more or less fired um, when when the Humboldt and these other universities were absorbed into the Western system. So there was a sort of purge of these Marxist-Leninist academics. And I think that's justifiable. Uh, yeah, I think and, uh, you know, academic freedom is obviously extremely important. Um, but it, but with, with a state-funded university sector, it does conflict with principles like taxpayer value for money. I, if you leave yes. everything up to universities and universities come to be dominated, at least in certain fields, by people who an objective assessment would indicate are not doing serious work, then there's a conflict between academic freedom and, and taxpayer value for money. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And I mean, I guess we could collectively take the decision we're not funding social sciences and humanities. I mean, the problem is there's always just enough overlap and useful stuff coming out of those disciplines. You know, you would lose a certain amount of... of value for society. Clearly, people are interested in these topics. I guess what I would like to see first is that these ideas around equivalent action and impartiality yeah. be tried and pursued aggressively. And this is the thing, is that conservative and right-of-center parties need to elevate culture as a much bigger priority and forget about... I actually think the economy, I won't say it'll completely take care of itself, but just is consuming far too much attention. And if your main issue is shrinking the state, you're going to trade off the culture. You're not going to care. That's where the Conservative Party in Britain is at present. I mean, they really don't seem to care at all about this, this the rise of World Korea. I mean, a few of them do, but it's just yeah. a, a relative sideshow for them. We need this to be the main reason people are conservative. And therefore, we need the government to be breathing down the necks of all the cultural and public institutions uh, you know, in real time. Uh, showing to the media what they're doing, the results they're getting, and that if labor comes in and undoes that, they've got to be paying an electoral price. So we do, we have to make the the woke issue the same as the EU uh, issue. Um, the, the way the EU, which was a non-issue, was elevated into the main issue. We have to do the same um, with, with sort of these culture war issues. Okay, so briefly then, if the Conservative Party doesn't take your advice, 
what does Britain look like in 20 years time? Um, I think it's going to be, I don't, I think Britain's going to a, a, a bad place on this stuff because of the generational turnover effects. Um, and I, I really don't, you know, I think it's going to be looking a lot more like Canada in 20 years where the Tories are going to be the natural party of opposition. You're going to have a, a, a much more of a institutionalized woke culture with a much weaker resistance. It'll still be a resistance, but I think it'll be a lot weaker. Uh, yeah, and I think the natural party of government will probably be uh, some combination of Labour and the Lib Dems. I think Canada is sort of the way to think about Britain in 20 years mm. uh, on present trends. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Just before we end... Is there any um, upcoming piece of work that you'd like to plug? Uh, thanks, Noah. Well, we've had these two policy exchange reports on the culture wars. Uh, there will be an upcoming Manhattan Institute report on critical race and gender theory in American schools, which I think is in many ways more far-reaching uh, than what we've seen in Britain um, <clears throat> in terms of what it's going to say about indoctrination. So I think that's something to keep an eye out for probably next month. Um, and otherwise, just check out my Twitter feed at uh, EPKAUFM. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Noah. Okay, bye.